This week on the Road to Cinema podcast, we talk with actress Natalie Morales. She's appeared on the hit television shows Parks and Recreation, Girls, The Grinder, opposite Rob Lowe, Santa Clarita Diet, opposite Drew Barrymore, the Judd Apatow-produced HBO comedy series Crashing, and premiering this September in theaters, the feature film Battle of the Sexes, opposite Emma Stone and Steve Carell. We'll discuss her craft and career as an actress, as well as what motivates her to direct and create her own content, and some inspirational lessons learned from working with Emma Stone on the new film The Battle of the Sexes. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema video series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can subscribe to Jog Road Productions on YouTube and see some of our latest video interviews with Don Cheadle, Greta Gerwig, Ewan McGregor, and many more. You can also check out some of our past audio podcast interviews, which feature everyone from Max Landis to director Peter Bogdanovich. Follow us on Twitter at Jog Road, Instagram at Jog Road Productions, like our Facebook page, Jog Road Productions, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button for the Road to Cinema podcast on iTunes, and you can write us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page under the Road to Cinema podcast. And now we join actress Natalie Morales for an in-depth conversation on acting, filmmaking, and her new film, Battle of the Sexes, which opens in theaters this September starring Emma Stone and Steve Carell. When did you know that you wanted to pursue a career as an actress professionally? Was that something that you always thought of doing like when you were in high school or did it kind of come later? It came later. Uh, well, I mean, it came in high school, but I didn't ever think of it as, a, as an option even. I don't know. I grew up watching TV and I hear this a lot. I hear when people ask this question a lot, I hear a lot of people in the entertainment business answer this way because it's true I don't know there's something about watching TV as a kid that sort of disconnects you from it and you you're not like that's a career I could do it just never crossed my mind um I don't know why it wasn't it just didn't seem like an option um not that I even wanted to I didn't just didn't know that I could do it so far away yeah it just wasn't it wasn't even a it wasn't like that's not for me it was just not in the thing I don't know it was make-believe it wasn't real life that was that was other people's lives that wasn't my life um, and, uh, and I wanted to be a criminal lawyer for a long time. And I, um, I, I got into this when I was 14, uh, I got into this magnet school for law and, uh, I was on my, my aunt had taken me on a trip, uh, for my birthday. So we were on vacation and my mom calls me and she says, Hey, you're, you know, you got the acceptance letter you're in. It, w- it was a lottery. So it wasn't based on, I mean, it's first based on merit, but then it's, lottery and so it was right totally random she's like you got in it's great so we all celebrated it was great and when I got back um I saw that they had misspelled my name it said Natalia Morales so I called the school and I said hey I'm really excited to go there um but I just want to let you know you misspelled my name and they're like no we just misspelled the address (laughs) so you didn't get in Natalia got in uh and so I had to scramble and go to figure out a school to go to um, for high school. And, um, and so I went to my local high school and I wanted, to, it was, so I was coming from this small, small private school that I'd gone to my whole life. And this was a really big public school. And so I, I had one, I had the latter half of the summer left 
And I was like, well, why don't I just take some summer school classes? That way it's smaller and I get to know some people before the, the real school starts, you know? And so I did that and I went um, and I signed up and the, I guess, I don't know who signed you up for that, the guidance counselor or whatever. I, I said, can I just take electives? I, I'll just do what I know I'll do. I'll do guitar because I play guitar. And I was like, oh, I'll take photography. That seems cool. And she's like, someone just took the last spot in photography. Do you want to try this drama class? It might be fun. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so that's how that happened. And so um, that was the first time I really came to, uh, yeah. to try it. Well, I, I think early on, I, I, uh, when I was a real small, I was always kind of a performer. I did a lot of magic as a kid. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but I didn't, I don't know, I just never thought of it as a career. I just was like very, I liked making people laugh and I liked entertaining people. And I think my mom, if I can, it's like really a, a hard memory to, to visualize because I don't remember it fully because I think I was really young. But I do remember my mom taking me to an audition somewhere for like a local little kids play. And all the kids there were like Broadway kids, you know, like they were like very well rehearsed and very talented and knew what they were doing and they had show bombs and this was like my first thing and I got up there and they were like I wasn't even prepared I didn't know what I was supposed to do I just showed up and they're like do you have any songs and I was like no <laughs> and they're like well why don't you sing um, I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston which is like the hardest song to sing and I remember singing it and doing horribly and they're like thank you and and I, I think I must have been like seven or something and I, I think I just was like no no thanks <laughs> Um, do you remember the first play that you tried to do in high school? And if you got um, any stage fright, did you feel like... Yeah, uh, I was not good. So <laughs> I, I did not get cast in a bunch, although I did do California Suite. I think that was my first oh, play yeah, yeah, in high school. But yeah, the stage fright thing, it was sort of a running joke in high school because I got over that very, very very quickly. So because I had joined that drama class in that summer school, I got to know everybody there and I got to know the teacher really well and I got I made a bunch of friends. And so they the teacher was like, "Hey, do you want in the school year instead of doing drama 1, do you want to do acting 1, which is a junior senior class, not a freshman class?" And I was like, "Sure, that sounds great." So I joined acting 1, which is Again, a junior-senior class, and I was this, like, 14-year-old, like, like <laughs> terrified of all the cool kids. And, and my school was very strange. It was, like, the, the popular kids were in drama, which is odd, I know. But there was, like, football players who were in the drama department who wanted to be actors. And there was, like, the, the drama kids were the cool kids. It's very kids. rare. It's usually yeah. separated. Yeah, the drama kids were the cool kids. Um, I don't know why. I think maybe because we got to, like, do pep rallies and be weird on stage. So... <laughs> For some reason, that worked out. So, um, so one day, uh, we had to do this assignment where we were learning the, um, the phonetic alphabet as part of our class. And so we were learning all these different accents and how to, how to really spell them out using the phonetic alphabet. And we were learning a southern accent. And part of our assignment with, these, with this accent, uh, accent, like, class, this part of this class was to do, we'd have to write and perform commercials in this accent. So at the time we were doing the Southern accent and I, um, my commercial that I decided to do was to do Britney Spears selling plastic surgery, which was like, it was like, I mean, God, it was like 2000, right? So the height of Britney Spears. Yeah. The height of Britney Spears. And everyone was like, she got a boob job. That was like the big thing. So I was selling, I was selling breast implants. 
and I had my Catholic school uniform from where I, where I had just gone to. So I went up on stage, and I and I had these big balloons in my bra, and uh, I had my hair in pigtails and a little Catholic schoolgirl shirt. It was my first time on stage because in the summer we didn't do any on stage work. What we did was we made a movie. Um, the whole class wrote and made a movie that summer, so I had oh. never actually been on stage. Um, so this was like my so that first was your first time in front of a camera. Yes, and wow. it's god awful, um, <laughs> so awful, uh, really, really awful. I hope that never sees the light of day. Uh, so this was my first time on stage, and that particular day, it was, so it was this class of seniors and juniors, which I had a crush on most of them, and that particular day, the like air conditioning had broken in the AP history class. And so they were using the back of the auditorium, yeah. which is all seniors. And then it also it, it was the same wing as the as the like suspension, or like the like um, what do you call it when you're suspended but you still have to go to school? It's like all day detention. It was like yeah, they kind of hold you in a room. Yeah. So all those kids were on the other side <laughs> of the auditorium. So it was like a huge audience of all like seniors. And I was a brand new kid. I was 14. And I get up on stage and I go, "Hi, my name is Britney Spears," and my skirt button breaks and my my sister had just given me uh this is a lot of information to reveal my sister had just given me uh for my birthday or for christmas or something um a pair of thong underwear <laughs> and it was like my first venture into that and it was i will never forget it it was white mesh thong and i was wearing that under this skirt and i and my skirt literally popped off and so i was on stage my first time with my clothes like my skirt just fell off and everyone just died laughing. And I was standing there with everyone laughing at me, literally in my underwear. This was not a nightmare, this was real life. And my friend came up with a jacket, escorted me off stage, and then after that I was like, well, what's the worst that can happen? My, my something like that could like scar people from yeah, but to be on stage it, it, it wasn't that bad and yeah. it was the worst thing that could happen on stage basically, you know? So I was just like, okay, guess no stage fright from now on and then that sort of cured it huh? yeah and then uh so after you graduated high school was that when you decided to move out to LA no I I wanted to um I listened to a lot of people's voice of reason um and which I somewhat argue is not a voice of reason but a voice of fear so were and some people deterring you from wanting to move yeah out? well yeah it was it was get a degree have a backup plan, and then maybe do You're it. from Miami. Yeah. Right? yeah. Get a degree, and then, you know, maybe do your weird, wild dream if you want to, but make sure you get a degree first. And I had gotten a scholarship, so school was free for me, thank God. Um, and so, so I was like, all right, I'll get a, I'll get a, I'll get a, I'll double major. I'll do a major in, in theater, and I'll do a major in education, and then my backup could always be I could teach it. Like, why not? That'd be fun. I like teaching. I was I was a substitute teacher, uh, like a permanent sub at this charter school in Miami, and I really enjoyed it. So I was like, I could do that. And so I did that. I got, well, I got my, um, I got my college, uh, my AA at the same time that I graduated from high school because I went to college and high school at the same time. So I was going for my bachelor's after, after I graduated high school. I was sort of advanced in that stage. So I went to um, I, I went to get my bachelor's and then at some point I realized like why why am I learning acting from people who are teaching it in Florida? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this doesn't seem like the best place to do that. 
Um, and so I, I left. I convinced my best friend to come with me. And we moved to L.A. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's good that you had a friend with you when you moved out here. Yes. It wasn't just you by yourself. Thank God, yes. And when you came out here, were you thinking, like, I'm going to get an acting teacher? I'm going to go to a class? Did you oh, no. I was like, I when I convinced her to come out with me, I was like, listen, three months top, we'll be on a TV show. It'll be fine. Um, <laughs> it'll, I'm guessing it'll take us a month to get an agent, another month to audition, and then that's oh. that'll be it. Uh, I had really... Well, within three months. <laughs> yeah, I had really <laughs> grandiose plans. Um, no, my, my plan was to... To audition and to and to write and create as much content as I could on my own. I was just starting. I mean, YouTube had maybe like just started to become a thing. Um, this was two thousand six, so I was like, I was that wasn't a thing. I was more into like sketch and doing doing sketch myself and and trying to figure out comedy, which was really interesting to me and weird. And I'd always. Um, veered towards comedy more, but I was still not very good at it. Um, and so, so yeah, I just started uh, auditioning and kind of hustling and, and putting myself out there. And I actually booked the first audition I ever went on, which was a McDonald's commercial. Wow. And, and thought, oh man, it's going to be smooth sailing from here. And it was not, but it was a good, it was a good omen. Yeah. What were you sort of picking up from that auditioning process as you were moving on from one to another? Because it can be like very deterring to a lot of people, but like you go into one and then yes, the, worst. the door closes and, um, I think the main lesson I learned from auditioning, um, and that I still sort of implement to this day, is that you you just you do it and you walk away and you forget about it. Because if you think about it, then it sort of has more power over you, like controls you, you know. And so it can it allows you to either be really hopeful or depressed or or anxious or whatever. And if it's just the thing that later on surprises you with good news, great. Yeah. But if it's just the thing you do every day, if it's just parking your car, if it's just putting in gas, if it's just going to an audition, then you get good news one day and it's great. Yeah. And you sort of just see it as like part of your day to day life yeah. as an actor. Like you have to yeah, I mean it's hard it's hard to do that sometimes when you think something's really great and when you really want something, you know? But uh, but I feel like for mental health that's sort of the best thing because otherwise if you really look at it, it's literal daily rejection, you know. Yeah. And and I think, I think the thing that I never got from acting school or from theater school that I learned being out here is, and I wish, if I ever did teach any kind of uh, acting or, or the business, I would teach the fact that it is a business. And, and like, I have so many, I have friends and I, and I think the way that they teach it in these like sort of conservatories is that um, your craft and what you do and this art that you make, they make it so precious. And while it is and can be precious, a McDonald's commercial isn't precious. You know what I mean? Like it's not. Yeah. You're and, and neither is TV really. You're selling soap. Like you yeah, are. You're there you to are. serve a purpose. You're there you to are. sell a yeah. commercial. So not that that can't be really good art. Obviously, TV has really great things. But I think you have to, as an actor, not be, especially as a struggling actor or as, a, as an actor who's trying to get work, you, you have to let go of the idea of, of, of your work being you and, and think of your work and you as a product you are selling. Yeah. And that, that will carry you through the entire thing from walking into a room before you even utter a word of the scene. You're a businessman. 
You know, you're you're walking in and you're selling yourself and you're selling a product and you're selling a thing. And you have to know that if they don't like your eyebrow, you're not going to get it. And that's not your fault. You know what I mean? Like if yeah. they don't, if they don't, but if there's things, I think that it's also important to be really aware of what it is you look like, what it is you, how you walk into a room, how you feel, what your vibe is. Because if you're unaware of that and you're just like, this is my craft, let me present it to you. Yeah. You may get discovered one day, but but you have to understand that those people have a job, they have to fill a need and, and it's, this, it's this circle. And if you're just having this myopic view of just your, you know, your Salvador Dali and this is your art and this is what you're presenting, then you're not thinking about the business side of it. Especially and in terms of what parts you could be right for because you could be exactly. putting yourself out there for parts that are completely... Exactly. And theater opposite. will do that. Theater famously will cast anybody in anything. You know, you can wear old man makeup and be an old man in theater, especially college and high school theater, you know? Yeah. So you you come fresh off that being like, yeah, I could... Exactly. Really exactly. <laughs> you can be like, I could be anybody. I did yeah. this. Why not? Um, and so, yeah, you have to really know what it's good to find. It's good to find your niche. And that's not necessarily saying that you can't broaden from that and do more from that, but it's good to know, it's good to know, Oh, I'm, I'm good at this. And so that also affects your presence when you walk into a room and it becomes a, you need me situation, which is the number one rule of selling anything, Yeah. you know? And so... I think that if I were to ever give advice to somebody starting out, it's that. It's like, that's almost more important than your talent. And, <laughs> and, and um, at least as far as getting paying jobs goes, you know what I mean? Like, maybe a really good theater director would be like, you're full of shit. I don't care about your selling. I, wanna, I care about your acting. And that's, that's what that is. But, but I think if you want to make a living or if you want, Yeah, if you want to make a living, try and do both, career, right? Yeah. Try and hone in on your on how on your talent and on your craft and what you're doing i hate when people say craft as far as acting because it sounds super pretentious but whatever sure it's that um try and hone in on 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 the skill of it and also know that if you want to get paid for it you must see it as a business yeah. it's um, funny because i spoke to um beth grant who's on the mindy project uh -huh. and she gave similar uh advice because once she narrowed in on what role she would be perfect for she just started booking things and yeah she went years without booking stuff wow but once she kind of narrowed in on i'm good for these types of parts i can specialize in this and yeah like and and i mean there's people that uh, it's a it's a dumb thing to say character actor yeah. i think because i think but that's what people see as like someone who can't play like someone who's not the standard hollywood like beautiful is a character actor that's everybody which is just you're an actor you can play anything and there's kind of a great beautiful resurgence of people who were traditionally character actors now getting to do meatier, better stuff. Like I'm a big fan of Anne Dowd who's doing amazing things. She's on the left. She was on the leftovers and she was incredible. And I'm watching the handmaid's tale and she's awesome. And I think that that's happening more now. She would normally be considered a character actress or like a mom actress or something like that. Um, I don't, I'm not really familiar with her earlier work, but, um, she is incredible and she gets to do all these plethora of roles because people are seeing, people are seeing, I think there's a little bit, because we've reached peak TV and that there's so much TV to watch, people are seeing that, um, that sort of idea of these are the types of characters I can play, yeah. um, works well also when you juxtapose it or when you, or when you flip that a little, you know what I mean? Like when someone looks a certain way and they are 
the non-traditional thing that you would think that someone would cast them as. Yeah, especially um, now that TV shows are gearing more toward sort of, um, you know, they're not like movies where it's sort of like big superhero mm-hmm. movie stars. Like they're more kind of real stories. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. So you're finding different types of characters, different types of actors to play those parts that right. you typically use in a movie. Right. Yeah. Um, it's a it's an interesting business, and there's an interesting and it's it's a it's fluid. You know, there's a there's there's not comedy isn't uh, isn't the same ever. Like it, yeah. what's funny last year isn't necessarily funny this year. You know, and and I think that there are some mainstays. There are some real things that will stand the test of time and be totally true. For example, I'm a huge Buster Keaton fan. I think he will always be funny. I think falling down in the right way is always funny. I think smart comedy is always funny. There are some things that you watch that really stand the test of time. You know, I think, I think Taxi does that. I think there are, I think episodes of Friends are still so, so funny, you know, and a lot of them are 20 years ago, you know, so I think some things really work, but for the most part in like a gimmicky way, especially when you go real character-y, that's what, that's what becomes, you know, Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. that's what becomes really outdated and, and sort of weird. Yeah, but um, that's interesting because Friends is just, like, those people are just archetypes of people we all know. Exactly. So that's, you know, exactly. And it, 30 years from now. And it's written in, in specifics, you yeah. know, that they're not, they're, those characters, what made that show, I think, so successful is that those characters had specific traits that carried on through seasons you know monica monica was fat and she loved food but now she's skinny and she's a chef and she's also super type a and what are the specifics that we can lean in on those things and always maintain that character and always like really build that out so that you know i like i don't know what other i sound like a huge friends (laughs) fan i i I, i'm a fan of the show but it's great too because the stories you can branch out from from yeah yes exactly exactly that's why they played a game in that show that was about them uh knowing things about all the characters and we all like like people like i offhand know that chandler's TV guide was Mrs. Chanandler Bond. <laughs> like offhand know that because that's such yeah. a great little detail that uh, that's just like it's good writing. But I think also um, you know making your own stuff really helps you see all angles of it. So if you're writing an act and, and directing something and then you have to cast other people, it informs your own experiences auditioning. You know, yeah. because then you kind of see the other side of it and go... Maybe some actors don't realize that, you know, a director comes in, you know, they have the script and they have this idea of what the character is. So right. it's this specific thing. The person has to look this way. So even if the actor is delivering the lines in a certain way, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, matter because if the person isn't that yeah, and sort of out the door. And conversely, I think a lot of times, especially newer actors or greener actors will go... And not even sometimes. Sometimes really experienced actors are very terrified of the other side of the camera. Are very terrified of the casting director and the director on the other side, and, and feel that they have all the power. When in reality, those people are just trying to find someone good too. They're just as desperate as you are to find yeah. someone for this part. And you if know? they feel like they find the, the wrong person, then they're exactly. Wrong, so, so so if you if you if you consider yourself more of a peer, yeah. then it works in your favor most of the time. I would say. Um, and if it doesn't work in your favor, then that's a bad job for you to have because if someone doesn't look at you as a peer, you're not going to have a good time. Yeah, and then you the know? products won't come out the best either. Everybody's collaborating. Yeah. That's the key to everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I noticed your first 
role on in a TV or movies or anything with CSI Miami. Yeah. So what was that experience like jumping into a big television show? I think you you mentioned the first time you were in front of a camera was that short film you did in high school. Um, yeah, so yeah, it was, um, I mean, yeah, then I did a few commercials. Um, I did some commercials in Miami and I also did, this is very embarrassing, because uh, maybe someone will find it someday, I did some novellas. <laughs> uh, which is very telenovelas. Funny. Telenovelas. <laughs> Although I don't have a, I can speak Spanish. I'm fluent, but my family's Cuban, and I don't know if it's this way anymore. But they were really strict about accent, and they thought that a Mexican accent was a standard neutral Spanish accent. So mm -hmm. they didn't they didn't think that my accent in Spanish worked because I had a Cuban accent. So they wouldn't, they didn't give me a lot of speaking roles. Um, so yeah, being on CSI Miami was real intense. Um, it was a really intense part too. I got kidnapped um, and David Caruso had to come find me. And, it, and it's, and it was a, it was a big, you know, it was the, at the time it was the biggest show in the world. Um, huge, huge TV show. So I felt really lucky and really uh, excited and, I was so nervous that day on set, uh, the first day, so nervous. And the second day got a little better and the third day. And then yeah. um, when it aired, all my friends came over and I basically ate my own hand in, in nerves, you know, and, uh, and it was, it was, I'll never forget that. That was really kind of amazing to, the first time you're on TV that opens a lot of doors, you know? Wow. Yeah. And uh, being in front of a camera, like, I mean, is there sort of, did you sort of have to find techniques to act with a camera, if that makes sense, as opposed to um, acting on stage? Or I think that there is a um, an awareness of the camera, and specifically of the light. And again, I think it always helps, even on stage, to not have a myopic view of your job. To consider that the lighting guy is trying to make you look good so work with him don't get out of your light find your light find the reason you have a mark is because you'll be out of focus if you don't hit that mark <laughs> you know um the you know like it's the, it's a whole like you said it's a whole team effort so i think it, i think that's a lot more true um while performing on camera rather than on stage whereas on stage it's a team effort throughout the rehearsals um, if you're in theater, once the show opens, you're on stage, you're, you're on your own. You might, it's a, it's a team effort with your other actors, but yeah. that's pretty much it. Um, maybe customers and stuff, but it's really, it's, it's your own game. So I think it's, it, I think it's to be aware of the camera and to forget about it at the same time is, is a, is a thing, you know? And, and I, I, there's a lot of little, it, I think it's just about being aware, really. There's a lot of little things that you pick up on after being on camera for a while, when you notice things around you, when you're not just like, I'm acting and I, nothing else matters, you know? When yeah. you're like, oh, is the camera only getting um, uh, this close-up shot? So I'm not gonna bother doing all this insane stuff below frame because you're not gonna see and it's just gonna make yeah. extra noise over everyone else's lines and, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you kind of pick these things up where you're able to stay in character and, and do the whole role while also uh, doing all these other technical little things, you know, it's not, you're just not, you're not lost in your little world. At least that's how I work. I don't, yeah. I, I try not to just be a thing in the wild they're filming. I, I try to, you know, work <laughs> yeah. with them and try and get the best product together. But that's also 
because I write and direct, I think helps to do that because I can really see, I can go, if, if, if there's ever any, if the director is ever like, can you try this or can you, and, and it seems like we're going back and forth, I will always go, what is it that you want? What's the final product that you want? And because yeah. that makes me like, it cuts through all the stuff and I can go, I can, I can give you that. Even if it has nothing to do with me. Like even if they're like, I want, yeah. when the camera moves here, I want to get this guy, I want to start on his eye and then I want to, I want to zoom out and I want to do that. And then I'll go, okay, then I'm going to start five steps later so that you get that and I don't block your shot. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's a, it's just a, it's a symphony of little intricate things that all yeah. have to work together. I think that's a good way to approach it where you're sort of, you're, you're a piece of the whole puzzle yes. as opposed to, you know, I'm here doing my performance exactly. and look at me. Exactly. And it's beautiful when it's that way. It's like, when you're on set and everybody's doing their piece and everybody's working together, it's it it feels like a song. Like I always I always talk about it in that in that sense. It's that like if you think about a symphony and all of the little parts that go into that, into into writing it, into performing it, into composing it, into putting it together, into recording it. That's only one small part of a movie. <laughs> that's only one. So all these things have to happen for a movie or a TV show to come together. And all these people have to do their jobs. Even if the script is great, you still have Right. You have all those things. Those and, and the amazing thing about this, uh, this business and what I really love about it is that it's very rare, very rare that you find someone who doesn't like their job. So it's too grueling and too like hard sometimes to do if you don't like your job so i mean we've all heard sort of horror stories about people that are getting paid too much that uh that are doing it just for the money yeah. but for the most part you're not gonna do 17 hours a day if you're not really enjoying what you're doing you know and and everyone there everyone from like a grip to a makeup artist is invested in what they're doing so when it all comes together and when when like i said when one person doesn't have a closed in view of like, just film me, I'm here, right? When you work all together, it's this yeah. beautiful uh, clock that, that really makes, makes a good, right. good thing, yeah. Well, you mentioned before that you started filming your own videos, your own content when you moved out here. Mm -hmm. um, how did that all begin and how has that sort of continued to today? Um, I, I started writing um, sketch. I was in this sketch group called Sitcoms Blow, um, and it was great. Uh, I was in it with Jillian Bell, who's sort of big right now, which is great, and um, and a bunch of other people. And it was sort of an answer to the other um, the other sketch groups that were maybe a little bit too clean, or maybe part of their own part of UCB or part of um, IO or something like that. Um, I don't think Second City had come out here yet, but Groundlings. So um, was this part of an acting class? No, was no, it was this, it was my friend Dane Hansen, who was a brilliant comedian who created it all. And um, and I was lucky enough to be a part of it. And it re he really taught me a lot and it really taught me a lot. Um, and, and so then I learned a lot about sketch through Dane. Um, and then I started writing stuff that was terrible and then what I wanted to do was write a movie. So I eventually wrote, I wrote a movie and then I wanted to direct it, but I didn't have enough directing experience. So I started to direct music videos for small bands or friends that I knew. And then it grew into bigger, bigger bands. And then it grew into me pitching Funny or Die, an idea 
um, of something I wanted to direct and them letting me do it. So I'd like would do a whole, I did a whole series for Funny or Die and then I've done a few things for them here and there. Yeah, I watched um, those, the, uh, the, uh, Jane, I'm sorry, I'm getting the name, James Joyce. Yes. 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 Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, I figured that would be easy as a first sort of step where, where I, I could really flush out the idea and there wasn't a lot of moving parts and it was just my very, very funny friends reading, um, James Joyce's love letters to his wife. Um, and I could do... And those are the real love letters. Those are 100% wow. real. In fact, the only editing I did was to take stuff out for time. <laughs> uh, so it's you watch it and you're like, is this a lark? Is this... No, nope, it's so real. It is, it's the product of me one late night on Reddit uh, going on a deep dive and being like, whoa, this is crazy. Uh, yeah, they're, they're very real. They're a real love, a real romantic love. And it's over 100 years ago in the... Stuff he likes to do to his wife is yeah. is uh, is crazy uh, even for today. So um, so yeah, I, I I did that and then I liked that and I liked editing that and I liked coming up with just fun way. I, I have ideas about things and about and about the way I like things to look and I like specifics and I like um, I've always had a sort of director's brain, so I really enjoy doing that. I noticed that you directed it. It was on your Twitter, this uh, this PSA uh, about Yeah. Of, so it was really interesting. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I got involved with this organization called Every Town for Gun Safety, um, specifically because, well, the gun epidemic, the gun violence epidemic in the United States is really out of control. And I, I mean, after... Newtown, that was awful, right? But but where it really, really hit home for me was um, was in Colorado Springs after the Batman shooting because that is what I do. It's my home. It's I make movies. It's yeah. every. It's my whole life. It's it's where I love to be. I love to be at the movie theaters, and it this felt like an attack on my life and on what I do. And, you know, it, it was just like, no, you are not taking movies away from me. You're not making me afraid to go to the movies. And, and I went to the movies uh, with my parents um, and one time when they were visiting and I, I can't remember what we were watching. I think it was like Jack Reacher or something. And, and, my, and someone walked in. I'm always now super really aware of, this was in Los of the entrances. Or? Yeah, it was at, I think at the Grove or something. I'm really aware of entrances in movie theaters. Um, someone walked in with a backpack and there was a surprise gunshot in the movie and I had a full-blown panic attack. Like, yeah. full-blown crying and needing to breathe because I thought my family was gone. Like, I, I thought everyone that I loved was going to die. And and I th that's a very real fear for people who have actually experienced that. And at this point, there is a lot of people who have actually experienced that. And so I want, I felt a lot of anxiety and I felt a lot of fear all the time. And I didn't necessarily want to live that way. And it's not a, it's not an anti-gun thing. It's an, it's an anti-gun violence thing, which is like, there are all these archaic rules about gun sales. Like, like you can buy a gun if you're blind, <laughs> which is crazy. Why, why? Like you can't, you can't drive a car if you're blind. So I don't understand why, you know what I mean? There's. You can buy a gun if you're on the no-fly list. Yeah. It's incredible. There's so many hoops that you have to jump through to do so many other things. Yeah, like just just a just basic, exactly, open. basic common sense of like, 
let's make sure this person is safe to own a gun the same way as this person is safe to drive. Like that's the only yeah. comparison. Both things can be lethal, you know. Exactly. One is literally made to be lethal and yeah. the other one's just made for transportation and we go through more hoops for that, you know. So, um, so I felt that the only way that I could help was to get involved. So I, I, I reached out to every town and I was like, I can help in whatever way. And they had this idea with Andrew Bird, who also works with them. Um, Andrew had this record coming out and wanted to sort of donate one of his songs as a music video that they could team up with. And so we, we really, um, we talked about it for a long time. Andrew and I met and sort of came up with a loose concept together. I didn't want it to be a PSA that was just preaching to the choir. What's the point of telling people who already agree with us to agree with us? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, the point, I, I wanted to do something that was enlightening and maybe showed the choir something they didn't know and other people something they didn't know. For example, I don't have children, um, and I think even people that do don't really understand and don't know the full scope of these lockdown drills that kids have to go through all over America. They're, I mean, when I was a kid, I did fire drills, um, and those were normal, but I hadn't ever heard of a school burning down. You know, I hadn't ever heard of, of uh, like, someone in my class lighting a match and burning us all on fire, whereas these kids know that. Yeah, these kids, this is, yeah, this things. is a real possibility. Yeah. Um, and I, the more people I talked to, the more kids I talked to about it, um, all the kids in the video had all gone through it, and it's very normal for them. They always say, someone in the class has a panic attack, always. Um, they're, you know, they've had SWAT teams shut down their school. It's a very normal, normal thing. And what that must do to these kids' psyches and their brains of yeah. like growing up feeling unsafe at school um, or growing up thinking that at any moment someone in your class or your teacher's husband or anybody could come in and, and, and kill you while you're supposed to learn. That, that alone is one thing. The second thing is you're doing these drills where you're like, let's practice for if we all die. And then let's get up and go finish our math test. Like, what does that do to your learning? You know, yeah. and, and I, I had never thought about that. I had never seen that. And it's a thing that every kid goes through in America now. It's, it's all over, every school, every, from pre-K to high school. I mean, you're having three-year-olds do lockdown drills. So it, it's, it's really across the board. And I, and I don't think that the generation above our kids knows it. So I, I wanted to just show the people that and when people watch that video they always go oh my god i was so afraid that something was going to happen yeah, to that's that what kid. i thought watching it i didn't realize yeah. it was a drill i thought well somebody's there and somebody's going to do something yeah but to see that that's common that that's you know yeah is, i remember fire and tornado drills that's all we had growing up exactly and then I, and and most people that watch that are like oh something's gonna something's gonna happen and then they're like the point is that it's it's just as bad when nothing happens when it's a regular normal school day yeah i mean it's just as bad. And, and specifically in Chicago and in other cities, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, violence. And, there's a, and, and while we were filming this, we walked by these memorials of all these kids who had died from gun violence. And we were shooting our kid with his backpack walking home from school. And while we were shooting that, there was other kids that were really walking home from school past these memorials, like kids that were living this. You know, we had sort of staged the him walking home through this. But this is an everyday thing. And I, I just wanted to show like a slice of life uh, of a kid in America today and let you 
let you see what that's like because I, I feel like that's affecting on its own. You know? All these places that we used to think were just, you know, a movie theater, school that were, we yeah, just assumed sort of they were fine. Yeah. yeah, and then now it's, it all has these negative connotations around them. I remember when the train wreck uh, yeah. shooting happened, the Amy Schumer movie, which was yeah. a horrible. It was horrible. I can't, I cannot imagine that. And so I want to work really hard to make sure that doesn't happen again, you know, and it's going to take time and it's going to take a lot of work. But I, I think we, I think we can all get to the point where we agree to have common sense about it. And, and I don't think that even someone who loves their guns and who, who is a proper, like good gun owner would agree to that. And I actually know a lot of people who, who are gun owners who own multiple guns and agree with that. They're like, it's just common sense, you know? Yeah. I think having that conversation with people outside of just, do we want to engage with other people and have those types of tough conversations? Yeah. But I think it's important just because, you know, you kind of, that's the only way progress is going to be. Absolutely. Made. I was just talking to someone about like the disparity of the election and how everyone was surprised at that. Like everyone was like, well, all the polls said one thing and then, and then yeah. Donald Trump won. And how did this happen? And, how are we, how is there this big of a disconnect between so many people and, and people in, in families? Like, I, I know families who don't talk to each other now. I know people who didn't invite their parents to the wedding. <laughs> Honestly, really? I really do. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a big divide across the country right now. And I honestly, honestly think that it's because in the last... I don't know, 50 years, we've really enveloped this idea of let's like, you don't talk about politics or religion at the dinner table. And absolutely that's what you should be talking about at the dinner table because like, that's how you know what your parents think and that's how you educate each other and that's how you learn. And that's how, like, I know so many people who don't agree with their parents and parents who don't agree with their children about politics and who had no idea until this election how strongly they disagreed. And so if we had been talking at every Thanksgiving up until now, we maybe have, A, at least not been as surprised, and, yeah. and B, would it'd be easier to reach a common ground rather than it be this taboo thing that you- I think more progress would have been made with absolutely. laws, with even healthcare absolutely. now, if we had absolutely. those conversations. You, you need to have the awkward conversations. I don't, I don't know why that carried over as a, as a rule at the dinner table, especially with your own family. I mean, it does make things unpleasant sometimes, but that's, that's what communication is. You know, you have to be, if, if there are people in your life that you love, you should know their beliefs and why the, they believe them and have discourse and talk about them and, and not stay in your own bubble, whatever that may be. Yeah. Do you, does it make you feel like you want to be more politically engaged in terms of the types of movies you want to make or the types of projects you want to be involved in or um, just based on what's going on in the world? Yeah, or? I think, I think politically engaged is a, is a, is a loose term that I don't, I don't know necessarily what that would mean. I'm not a poli-sci major and I certainly don't know about a lot of things. I have opinions about things and I watch and I, consume the news and and like I watched the entire Sally Yates hearing yesterday it's completely riveted um but I'm not I'm not an expert in any of this I wrote an article about I wrote an op-ed about Cuba because my family is from there because I um constantly get people saying uh oh my god I can't wait to go to Cuba before it's ruined and before it's ruined yeah <laughs> 
Like, I can't wait. I, ugh, they're going to get a Starbucks soon. I have to go before that. And I'm like, why the fuck do you get a Starbucks and they don't get a Starbucks? It is, it is not your Instagram background. It's a country with poor people run by a dictator. It's a, it's a bad, it's a, it's not a good situation. I think people have forgotten it just because it's open. Yeah. Because it's sexy and spicy through, uh, and whatever. And the yeah. cars are old. They don't have old cars on purpose. <laughs> they have old cars because that's all they have. Um, and, and that, so I'd like to be politically engaged to my ability, you know, and I, and I, and I certainly, as far as art is concerned, um, definitely like to say things and definitely like to make people think at the very least. And I don't ever want to be preachy and I don't ever want you to think what I think. That's not my place in life. I want to maybe show you what I think and show you what other people think and let you decide from there. Um, and, and I think that that is important in art. And I think... Um, Starting the conversation, I think. Is yeah, and I think, honestly, work. as far as I'm concerned, it'll happen anyway, even if I'm not trying, because it's just innate uh, in me to, to make things that are... that say something, for the most part. Sometimes I'd go real silly, but for the most part... <laughs> for the most part, I... I, uh, I I have things to say, and I and I like I like making people with the things that I make. I like making people feel funny and feel uncomfortable in a certain way because I I think that when you feel uncomfortable, especially if you're alone and you're watching something, if you feel uncomfortable, you have a few different responses to it. You either turn it off and say you don't like it, or it gives you this funny little feeling inside that sparks something in the back of your brain that goes, maybe I should look into why I feel uncomfortable about that. Or maybe I should study more about that. Or maybe I should hear this person's opinion. Or maybe I should... I just want to plant a seed. If if you have a, a strong belief about something, that you can maintain that belief, no matter what it is. Um, but there are other points of view, and, and you should at least know what they are and understand those people just like understand why those people think it is that way i think we all tend to villainize each other and dehumanize each other a lot when we disagree with somebody and that's not that's not necessarily always the case you know just because someone is voted differently than you they're not a villain they have a reason why and you should at least hear it and maybe part of you agrees with it but part of you doesn't you know it's it's an interesting interesting thing but I think progress can never be made until we're sort of willing to hear both sides absolutely and as tough as it is you know? absolutely and I think that art is a really good way to do that and I think that movies and TV are a really good way to do that because they reach the masses you know yeah and we can see empathy just through you know relating to these characters exactly and what they're going through. exactly it's like I think that there's a reason the bigger cities are the liberal cities and it's because they have you're forced to empathize with people that are completely different than you. In New York City, in LA, you walk down the street and you don't see people that look exactly like you. You see all sorts of people. And so even if you're set in your ways and whatever, you're gonna sit next to someone totally different than you on the bus, or you're gonna watch someone feed their kid, or you're gonna, you know, you're gonna experience a different you life. You can't than escape you. from that reality. You can't escape yeah. it. So it automatically makes you empathize with people differently different than you are. And and I think in maybe in smaller towns you don't get that experience as much. 
you only experience people that are similar to you with similar lives as you. And so it makes you a little bit more enclosed. You know, it makes you a little, it makes you less liberal. It makes you less willing to, it's the actual definition. It makes you more conservative because yeah. you only know this and that's all you need to know. Whereas if you're in a bigger city, you see all, all sorts of people and all sorts of lives. So you are automatically, you know, more exposed to different things. And I think through TV and movies, we can, we can, we can send that experience to, to towns that may not have that, you know? If you have n like zero Muslim people in your town, you're not gonna, you're, ha you're gonna have no idea what it's like to be a Muslim yeah. person. That's why I think those portrayals of Muslim people, of minorities in, in media are so important. I because agree. Because those people living in the middle of the country, their only interaction with those people is through the media. I agree. So if it's negative, that's, exactly. that's going to be their reaction. Exactly. I think, I think, you know, and, and there, have been, there have been things that have really changed people's perceptions of things. Like the show Will and Grace did a lot for people accepting gay, gay people. Like it was just, it, it was a show that people liked across the board. And Ellen has done that as well. You know, there's... Yeah. If she didn't exist, there would be a lot of people who would be like, I don't have any gay friends. But people watch Ellen every day and go, that's my gay friend. You know, yeah. they relate in a way. And they know that she means well and they, they empathize with her. And so um, I think that it is important to do that. I wanted to talk a little about uh, Battle of the Sexes, yeah. which comes out in September. Uh, so this is an interesting, I've always found them interesting, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie, am I getting the name Ferris, right? Ferris, yeah. Valerie Ferris, they're a married couple and they direct together. Yes. So what is that experience like being with two directors who are also married? It was fascinating, honestly. <laughs> um, I would watch them and they're really interesting. They sort of discuss in quiet every idea that they have and then they'll go and tell everybody. And they've been working together forever. They started out doing music videos, um, which is very inspiring to me. Um, and they are brilliant and they sort of fill in each other's gaps and strengthen each other's strengths and, and it's and it's really it's really amazing to watch people share that share that like position, share the share the calling the shots, share yeah. Is you that know, one of your first times working with uh, two directors yeah, simultaneously? Yeah. Um yeah. And it was really sort of fascinating to see. They were they're a, the nicest people, um, and, and B, so talented. So um, I, I felt really, really lucky to be a part of that. And I just watched it recently, and it is gorgeous and beautiful, and I'm so yeah. proud to be a part of it. So this is about uh, this famous tennis match that happened between... Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs, yeah, in the 70s. And it was called The Battle of the Sexes, but really it's about everything leading up to that. And it's about Billie Jean discovering that she was a lesbian. And it's about Bobby Riggs's grasp, coming to grasp, coming to terms with the fact that he was getting older and what he was going to do with his life, you know. And this is a, it's a really great character study in both those terms. But it's also the height. It's very interesting, uh, politically speaking, is what we were talking about. It's, yeah. it's, it's the height of the women's like lib movement, you know. It's it it literally was men against women, and in this whole stadium, it was played at the Astrodome. It was all the Bobby Riggs went around. The reason it was played is because Bobby Riggs went around for publicity mostly. He didn't necessarily believe it, but he would really say it in public, saying that men could do anything that women did much better. That women's place was in the kitchen and with kids and. 
um, that he, as an aging tennis star, could beat the best female tennis star, even if she was 20 years younger than him. Um, and so Billie Jean thought that was like a joke. She's like, I'm not participating in this. But it got so big and it got so much attention. And men were wearing shirts that said they were proud to be shown as pigs. And it became this real huge thing that actually meant something for, for women. Um, and, and actually leading up to that movie, and the part I play is, I play Rosie Casals, who was Billie Jean's tennis partner and one of her closest friends at the time. She had to... Billie Jean and Rosie, and there's another group of women who had to separate uh, from the USLTA, which is the Tennis Association, and start their own tennis circuit because the women were getting paid um, 10 times less than the men for the exact same thing. 10 times less of a prize money. Um, they would draw in just as much crowds, and Billie Jean was like, no. And so they started their own women's tennis circuit. They were sponsored by Virginia Slims, which doesn't necessarily go well with playing sports, but, uh, but they, they, they went out on their own and they made, they made their way. And, and Billie Jean actually, you know, paved the way for women, equal pay for women in sports. And tennis is one of the only sports where that still happens. Obviously, it doesn't happen in a lot of other sports still. Yeah. There's a WNBA and a LPGA, but I'm not sure if those are in parity with uh, their male counterparts. They're definitely not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then I think Simon Bafoy wrote the script. I was interested in seeing that name because I think he wrote uh, 127 Hours. Oh, did he? I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I never met Simon. He wasn't on set, so I'm, I look forward to meeting him. That'd be uh, great. And uh, from working on that film I, and being with Steve Carell and Emma Stone, do you pick up things from working with other actors that are sort of things that carry over? Oh, definitely. Emma, Emma is so impressive. I was really marveled by her. I mean, the amount of commitment that 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 girl has is like stunning. And yet she can still, she still has so much fun on a set. But like we would take a, she gained, I think, I don't know, like 10 or 15 pounds of just pure muscle for that role. Um, She trained so hard and she, like we, they call cut, and she'd be talking to us, and we all be joking, and she's just doing push up after push up after push up after push up, just just on set, like messing around with everybody, but just like focused, so focused on it. And she, um, she learned. Billie Jean had this really specific style, really specific moves that she always did, um, that were really uh, characteristics of hers and hers alone. Yeah. And Emma transferred them all, watched tape of it made it into choreography and learned it all as choreography so that when she would play tennis it was a it was basically an entire dance move wow. um so that she would do billy jean's moves exactly right um and it was so fascinating it must have been crazy to, to watch that on set as they're having this it was fashion. yeah she's doing it as she's playing tennis and she's doing the exact same things billy jean did and it's it was really fa- that was all emma's idea it was really fascinating to see that like how do you get something down that yeah. well? Oh, you choreographed. Have a double going. Yeah, I mean, she did have she did have a ten, everybody had tennis doubles, but because they want you know, um, Val and John wanted it to look real. But yeah. Actually, a lot of the complaints of the real tennis players that we played with uh, were like, every tennis movie, the tennis is terrible. <laughs> like, tennis is so so the fast. The last tennis movie I remember is uh, Wimbledon. Yeah, Kirsten Dunst. Yeah. yeah, they were like they complained about every tennis yeah. movie being the worst at tennis. 
So Val and John really wanted the tennis to look, I mean, that's what the movie's about. But both Steve Carell, Steve Carell, I think, played a little. I don't think Emma had ever really played, but she trained for like six months. She's not going to be Billie Jean, you know what I mean? She's not going to be that good. But she is a lot of the movie and, um, and really did so well. It's, it was really awesome to watch her. And I remember being on the court and watching her do that choreography and hitting every ball and doing everything. It was just so fascinating. She's really maybe one of the most hardworking people I've ever met in my life and deserves everything that's coming to her. She's yeah. You hear about the work so that she put nice. in for uh, La La Land. So they rehearsed that so for so long on Ryan Gosling. And yeah. You can see that commitment there. It doesn't surprise me. She's incredible. She's really incredible. She's, I'm really glad that she is like, the people are starting to see her work and what she can really do. Yeah. She's I like, think Birdman was sort of the yeah. opening to that. Now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Steve Carell too, I remember I saw a Foxcatcher not mm-hmm. that long ago. Him in that party, He's just amazing. completely forget. Wait till so. you see him in this, oh my God. If you watch, I think there's a documentary, a Battle of the Sexes documentary that was a PBS thing. If you watch that and just see what Bobby Riggs was like or would look like, you'll be yeah. like, oh, Steve Carell, 100% <laughs> Steve Carell. He's so good at it. He's yeah, I'll so check good that out. When I Google Battle of the Sexes, the documentary came up. Yeah. To see if that's on Netflix. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's good. It's really good. 